Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. On DAB, digital radio, online and on 1089 and 1053 AM. Icon of all sporting broadcast media and jolly nice chap to boot. Motty Meats on Talk Sport. Tonight, a change of direction away from playing and coaching in Motty Meets because we're going to be looking at the workings of a modern-day Premier League club. I'm joined by the Watford chairman and CEO, Scott Duxbury, who takes us inside the boardroom. The gap is way too wide. It's not good for the game. The Premier League is creating a gap, not just between the Championship and the Premier League, but also the supporters and the clubs. I want players to leave because it means everything has been working correctly. They'll leave on our terms, which means we get the transfer fee that we want and they get the club that they want. The Premier League is a wonderful product, a wonderful league that's the envy of the world. We've got to think carefully before we start to alter that because we could break it irretrievably and then other leagues will uh, overtake us. Scott, if we could start with your earlier life, pre-Watford. How did you get into football? Uh, I qualified uh, as a lawyer uh, and instantly uh, was working with Maurice Watkins, uh, who at the time uh, was one of the most famous sports lawyers. Uh, uh, We worked together uh, and we were seconded to Manchester United. uh, And that's really how how my career began. All of my uh, advice has always been around sports and football clubs, Mm -hmm. uh, particularly uh, Manchester United and it was through that expertise and at that time th- there wasn't really uh, sports lawyers it was a, a, a new uh, concept uh, and because of the advice I was giving to Manchester United uh, I got recruited by West Ham uh, I spent 10 years uh, at West Ham uh, then moved from West Ham to Australia and then eventually uh, uh, Watford How much of the experience that you gathered in 10 years at West Ham came in useful when Watford came calling? Experience is everything. I mean, there were successes, there were failures, probably more failures than there should have been, and probably some that were extremely high profile. But I can honestly say that you learn far more from the failures than you do the successes, and it's shaped me as a person and as a, as a chairman. So it's, it's time and history that really has shaped me, and those experiences I've really put to good use, and I feel far more equipped and far better to, to drive a football club forward because of those experiences. Now, let me just get one thing right. CEO and chairman. Yeah. Can you just, for somebody like me, explain what the difference is and how the two jobs combine? 
there isn't really a difference. I'm, a, I'm an executive chairman, so I'm responsible for running every aspect uh, of the of the football club. It was a change that Gino wanted to make when he felt at a particular time he wanted his very close inner circle to to, to represent the, the, the higher echelon of the football club, which is the chairman. So he just wanted that role to be consumed by somebody very close to him who shares his values, his ideals of how to run a football club. And so that's why we, we consumed the role of CEO and chairman into uh, into one. Well, we're going to talk about those uh, aims and ideals very shortly. In fact, I want to know, first of all, you mentioned Gino. How did you first meet Gino and Giampaolo Pozzo? And how did you kind of get introduced into the Watford family? I was in Australia at the time, and uh, Gianluca Canani, who was the, uh, the technical director with me at, at West Ham and then the technical director at Watford, called me to say that he was working with, uh, with Gino and he was looking for a football club. Uh, in the UK, and would I help him and Gino uh, locate, find, and negotiate the deal to uh, to buy that club? So, I agreed. Uh, we looked at several clubs, uh, and eventually we we settled on on Watford. And I uh, assisted in the in the purchase of Watford for Gino, and then took the reins as as chief executive once it was completed. And what appealed to you about Watford? What made it seem like the right fit? It was the only club with three stands. We just thought that's amazing. <laughs> We'd never seen anything quite like it. It was a it, it was a club that was rooted in the community, uh, and had three stands. So we knew that we could improve it. We knew we could uh, we could grow the club, but without being flippant, that community aspect, which I, which I said earlier, was key because Gino, despite popular conception, doesn't have a blueprint. He doesn't say this is the project. This is how we're doing it. He owns Udinese. He owned Granada, and he very much respects the locality of the football club and each tradition uh, and community is key because if, if you have a strong community presence in a football club they will allow you to grow they will be patient they will be understanding and that was key at Watford it was a really strong community base that we we felt that they would appreciate the growth and the time that we would put into that football club to try and develop it and that was key to the decision there were other football clubs we were talking to but that strong community aspect was really was the driving force behind the purchase I guess that's a good moment to bring in the name Graham Taylor because Watford had the golden years, as they called them, under Graham when they got into the cup final in Europe and second in the old first division and two promotions when he came back. And earlier this season, just digressing for a moment, I was there when you unveiled the statue to Graham Taylor outside the ground. Mm. Did you still, or do you still sense that something of his kind of influence still hovers around the club? Absolutely. Graham is, is fundamental to the DNA of the football club, but he's also fundamental to me personally. When I, when I first arrived at the club, he was one of the, the first people to take me to one side, explain the values of the football club, and really be quite excited about what we could bring to the football club and how it could be shaped. And he was always the barometer of what was right and what was wrong. You know, I have many ideas how I want to grow the football club, some of which just wouldn't work at Watford. And he was the first to say, listen, son, I think maybe we should be doing it this way. Mm. And now he's gone, I've lost that barometer. There's still some really good people at the club that share Graham's values, so yeah. you always have that sound check. But for me personally, having Graham's values ingrained in the football club it's a simple roadmap to where we where we need to go because his values, his ideals, really are the. It, it's the way the football club will grow and, and develop, and I've never forgotten that, and never will. I mean, I only knew him a short time, but the impact he had 
on the football club and me personally was fundamental. And of course, the fans still chant there's only one Graham Taylor in the 72nd minute. He'll never be forgotten. No, he'll never be forgotten. I've even changed my way in from home on a match day, so I drive past the statue and just, you know, it's a little superstition. I'm going to stop it because ever since I've started doing that, we haven't scored a goal or won a game. (laughs) So he's not bringing me any luck in that regard, but he's somebody that we'll never forget. Absolutely. Now then, when you and the Potsos moved into Watford, so to speak, what were your first impressions once you'd got your feet under the table? What were your priorities? The priorities were to create a football club off the pitch that we would be proud of. And even now, I am just as proud, if not more proud, of what we've done off the pitch than what we've done on the pitch. So it was very much about the infrastructure. We had a stadium with three stands. It was embarrassing. But I said to the to the club, we have regular fans forums, that there's no point in just building a fourth stand if we don't have the demand. You've got to be excited. You've got to want it. And the moment there is the demand for that stand, we'll build it. And they did. There was a waiting list. There was a demand for those tickets. So we built the fourth stand. And I think now, if you look at Vicarage Road, for the size of the stadium, it's it's comparable and as good as any stadium for its size. And that's what makes me proud, that we have this wonderful football club in the heart of the community that our supporters can be proud of. We've done the same with the uh, training ground and we've done the same with football in the community, the, the Football Trust. It's, it's something that everybody can be proud of and it's that off the pitch, going back to Graham Taylor as well, that probably myself and Gino are, are the most proud of. It's great to create a team that wins football matches and entertains, but what is a lasting legacy, what really means something to the supporters and to me is what we've done off the pitch and that's the most important thing. One thing about the pot shows, the, the image that some people on the outside got when they took over was, well, what are these people doing who own a club in Italy and own a club in Spain and how many foreign players are they going to bring in and how many are going to be... And a lot came in on loan, of course, as you, as you would be the first to say. I mean, did it take a bit of getting used to for some people to, to, to identify with overseas owners? I think with any new ownership, there's an element of, of trust and you've got, to, you've got to deliver and then the supporters will, will, will trust you. But... I think we always have regular communication with our supporters. We have the fans for them, so they've never been left in the dark with what it is we're, we're trying to achieve. And Gino Pozzo's uh, ambitions for the club at the beginning were, were really transparent. They'd owned Udinese for getting on over 30 years now, so they're not transient owners. They want to grow something and they want to be there long term. He's got great expertise within the scouting network. That's his passion, recruiting players. And he wanted to come and see if he could build a football club in the best league in the world grow it long term that the community would be proud of and he would be successful and that was the reason why he wanted to purchase an English football club to to test his knowledge and metal in the best league in the world. Mm. And and at one point, you you may say it's different now, at one point uh, in this project you you had 14 players on loan and 10 of them were from Udinese. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, it's at the time, again, we, we were completely transparent. We'd just uh, hired Franco. The window was closing with about three days to go, and we want to be competitive. So we had to bring in a massive influx of players the best way that we could. With three, I think it was three or four days before the window closed, we couldn't go to the market and just suddenly buy a lot of players. So we had to use the resources that were available to us within the group, which was players surplus to requirement at Udinese and or Granada that we could bring on loan that we believe technically would give us an advantage. It was a massive influx of players, and that's why Gianfranco Zola was the perfect coach to actually, during a campaign, sift through those players and decide what his best eleven was. And for him to do that and get so close to promotion was was quite remarkable and testament to what a great coach he was uh, for Watford Football Club. 
Well, we're now going to talk about coaches because <laughs> my mathematics hasn't been too great on this, but I've worked out that in the years that the Potsos have been in charge of Watford, um, what is it, eight years, uh, nine years, nine different coaches, Scott. Mm. Now, that is a lot of chopping and changing. How do you explain it? There is... It, it's it's not our proudest record, and there's obviously been individual examples that aren't our fault. So uh, there's been coaches that have retired due to uh, ill health. There has been coaches that have that have retired. There have been coaches that haven't uh, renewed their contract or haven't done on terms that are acceptable to us. But yes, it has been uh, a number that we're not proud of. We've been searching, as every club is, for the right fit, and we have a strong model that we build a football club outside of the remit of the coach. The coach is there to train the players and pick the best 11. So if we feel it's not working correctly and it's hindering the development, we have confidence in the infrastructure and the club that we can take that change. It will be stress tested and the club will continue to grow. So it's not as disruptive removing a coach as perhaps at other clubs, which is why there is the high number. But we've been searching for the right fit who can have a long term because we see benefits of of stability from the head coach side and, and hopefully with with Javi we've now found that but again going back to the respect thing when we've made a mistake like we did uh, with Billy we I held a fans forum the very next day after he was removed held my hands up and said made a mistake it was the wrong thing to do however I think it would be even more wrong for me just because it's politically correct and looks good in the media to stay with that person I'd sooner take the flack because I don't believe it's the right thing for the football club and bring in a coach who I believe can get us promoted. We brought in Slav and we were promoted. So we don't always do what is the, the media savvy thing to do or the politically correct thing to do, but we always do what we think is the right thing. And that's how we run the football club. This is Motty Meets on Talk Sport with Watford chairman Scott Duxbury. When you talk about the structure behind the scenes and the model... Um, how much of that is down to the personal relationship between you and Gino Pozzo? How many people are involved in keeping that stable, if you know what I mean? As you've said, quite apart from what the coach is up to with the team. As far as the running of the football club is concerned, it's a very, very close circle. Gino leaves the, the entire running of the football club to myself. Then, as far as recruitment's concerned, Gino, the best way to describe him is he's a technical director. That's his passion. He loves recruiting players, creating a scouting network. And working alongside Gino is uh, Filippo Giraldi. So the three of us uh, run the football club. I'm there to drive the football club, particularly off the pitch, although I do get involved in recruitment as well. But it, it's a very close circle. And I think it's that speed of decision, which I've referred to before, that speed of decision making, which allows us to have a, a slight advantage in our competitors. We're not limited by bureaucracy or a huge board. If we want to do something, build a stand, it will be done. If we want to sign a player, it will be done that day. So it's that speed and linear decision-making that I think gives us uh, gives us an advantage. We're not always right with our decision-making, and sometimes well, we have to hold our hands up, but we, we at least always make a decision. Well, you were a championship club in the first place, and then Slavisa Jokanovic, Slav. Uh, Slav as you call him, got you... Well, I say got you. He, he was the coach when you were promoted to the Premier League. Now... Yeah. How big a step, I know obviously everybody wants to be in the Premier, but how big a step in Watford's culture was getting into the Premier League at that stage? We 
had an infrastructure that was Premier League, and we believe it was that that, that contributed significantly to us being promoted, rather than just investing in the playing squad. We grew the club, so it was Premier League standard and quality, and there was a natural evolution for us to get to the Premier League. So financially, it makes a massive difference being in the Premier League. Competing at the highest level is what we all want to do, but I do think the DNA and the heartbeat of the club is still exactly as I found it in the Championship. Nicer surroundings, definitely all together. One of the first things I said when I arrived at Watford is that if we're all together in this, supporters, board, coach, everybody, we can achieve great things. And the supporters have been fantastic. They are completely with us. They understand where we're trying to go and they respect what we're trying to do. That's really strong and powerful. If you don't have dissent and you have us all together, we can achieve great things. Now, all right, established Premier League club, but I've seen you sometimes halfway through the season, Scott, looking at the other results and thinking how many points have we got, how many might we... Because, of course, at one point it was how many points would we need to stay in the Premier League, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely, and, and that will never change. Listen, our ambition is to is to achieve and to do far more, but ultimately I want to stay in this league. Yes, there's all the financial gain, etc., but greed in football is too much. The reason I want to be in the Premier League and I want Watford in the Premier League is because it's the best league. It's the top of the tree, and I want us to be there. I want us to compete, and I want us to be in that division, and it's so important that we remain in that division, and so I don't think I'll ever stop pacing, and I don't think I'll ever stop looking at the, at the results down below. However, <laughs> it doesn't mean that I, I don't have one eye on what's above. No, I'm sure you do. Um, and I was going to ask you there, the Pozzos, having had that experience in Italy and in Spain, how do they think the Premier League compares to those leagues in other countries? Their view is it's the hardest, hardest league in the world. Uh, the games are never won in the Premier League. In Italy, you can be 2-0 up with 10 minutes to go, it's done. Whereas in, uh, in the Premier League, it never stops and teams are never, never know when they're beaten. Uh, we've been 3-0 up and it's gone to 3-2 and there's been a scary couple of minutes. So to the last kick of the ball, the, the competition in the Premier League is, is unbelievable. And literally any team can beat anybody and you just don't see that in Serie A or La Liga. And that's what we've got to try and uh, preserve in the Premier League. You know, We don't want a situation where the top six are routinely beating everybody outside of the top six and it becomes formulaic and stale. The, the magic of the Premier League is that every supporter turns up believing, well, I could win this match, and that's phenomenal. Well, it is, it is, and uh, I'm, I've seen you at matches pacing around sometimes during the game. You don't always sit down, do you? Home, I never sit down. <laughs> and away games, I wish I could stand, but they, uh, they won't allow me. But yeah, at home, I never, I never is sit that, down. Is that nerves? Because, I mean, the success of the club gets to you, doesn't it? I mean, obviously, all the time. I mean, what goes through your mind on a match day? Uh, honestly, the problem is that I've built this football club I've got a great team around me and we've built something really really special and I take real responsibility on a match day I want the supporters to be proud I want everybody to think wow this football club is is superb and I take personal personal pride and pressure in that and I have no control on a match day and I can't stand that <laughs> I yeah. can't stand that you can't play can and, you and so it just it just kills me well now listen it's time we got on to the modern um, era, well, we are at the modern era, but your latest coach, can I call him that, Javi Gra <laughs> Grazia, has just taken charge, as we're speaking here today, of his 39th game for Watford in the Premier League. Which game was that? It, well, it was the 39th game. I, I mean, it, that was Burnley, wasn't it? I oh, think it, Brighton. I Brighton. think it was Brighton. Yeah. I think it was Brighton. And that was a Watford record. Right. So what does that tell us? It wasn't a very good game. <laughs> 
I don't think we had a shot on target, but that will change. That will change. It tells us that uh, you know we don't change coaches because we think it's it's headline grabbing. As I said, every club is looking for the appointment that can be long term, and we think Javi shares our values. He's proud to be at the football club. Every single press conference he does, he expresses how much it means to him to manage this football club. He loves the group of players he has. He understands that his role is to coach and get the best out of the players he has and that there's a support mechanism around him. He embraces that. And more than anything, he absolutely respects and values being the head coach of Watford Football Club. And it is a special job. It is a special club. And to have somebody that's so passionate about that... uh, he deserves all the success he can get. Well, I'm I'm anxious to know what attracted you about him, but obviously I must just make the point here, and we can't discuss it in detail because there's still legal implications, but of course he took over from Marco Silva, yeah. who you dismissed, and then of course there was the, the disagreement with Everton, but that's still ongoing. Now, when you had to replace Silva, did you already, I say this because I know it's it's part of football that people have to have somebody in mind in case the manager goes. Had you sort of noticed anything about Javi Gracia in the past that attracted you to him? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it it, it, it it's just common sense that we have uh, a scouting network of players. Should uh, a certain player in our starting eleven leave, we know who to replace, and we do the same with coaches. We we have a number of coaches that we watch, that we observe, that should for whatever reason we need to move then we can move quickly and efficiently. And Javi was somebody that we'd been watching for some time. We knew his record at Malaga. We knew he had a track record of coaching young players and really bringing the best out of the players that he had at his disposal. And some of the achievements he uh, he got at Malaga were, were incredible. Very good man manager. So all the reports and how he worked were very positive and we had no hesitation when Marco moved on in, uh, in bringing Javi in. And again, Javi's first uh, press conference was just to express the pride that he had at being at, the, at this football club. It's perfect. You know, you, you want somebody to be at the tenure that has absolute pride at being at the football club and understands the enormity and privilege of being the head coach. And he's never lost that. He's never lost that humility. He's never lost that passion and that drive. Uh, and he's a wonderful coach. Now, while we're talking about overseas coaches, and this doesn't necessarily apply just to Watford, I'm just wondering how important, because we see them on Match of the Day and being interviewed, how important is the English-speaking aspect of a coach? Uh, I think it's very important. Uh, We are an English football club, and so you have to be able to communicate in the mother tongue. I think, you know, it's it's important, not just with the players, because the players are a, a number of languages, but, you know, there's physios, there's the medical team, there's the canteen staff. There's a, a day-to-day operation at the training ground that's just as important to delivering success as the players, and predominantly they're English. So they need to see their head coach and their coaching staff integrating fully with the environment. So one of the problems with Volta uh, Mazzari, who's a great coach, you know, you're seeing what he's doing at... Uh, in uh, at Torino, is that he couldn't speak English. He no. couldn't. He, he just couldn't, and that creates a barrier. Not just communicating with the players, but as I say, with the staff. Uh, and once that barrier is up, it, it's very difficult to uh, to succeed. It's not. It's not insurmountable, and certain coaches have done it. But as a general rule, mm. I think being able to communicate effectively in English is is pretty important. Would he insist on English being spoken in the dressing room? Yeah, 
by everybody. Yeah. That, yeah. Well, those that can. I mean, you must still have players who are learning English. Yeah, and we and we have English tutors come in, and those that aren't at the standard, they have to do it two, three times a week. But in footballing language, there's only certain ter- terms and terminology that you need to know, and most of the players can uh, can do that now on the training pitch, particularly in in training. So uh, English is is insisted upon, and, and most players are able to do it. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Motty Meats on Talk Sport with Watford chairman Scott Duxbury. Now, you've talked a lot about Gina Pozzo's recruitment policy and how that works behind the scenes and yourself are involved as well, of course. When you go or when you identify a player with a view to signing him, would you give? Would you ask the coach for an opinion? It's, it, we, don't, we very rarely identify a player. We speak to the coach and identify char- characteristics of what we're missing. So either a pacey right-footed right winger or uh, a centre-forward who can drop deep. So we identify characteristics and then we draw up a short list of players. We, we'll never fall in love with one player because it's a recipe for disaster. We'll always usually have two or three players for that position and we'll see which one we can get. And of course we involve the coach. Uh, he'll say, I prefer player one out of that three, but... I'm happy with either of them or any any one of the three. So we'll always involve the coach in the dialogue. Uh, and once we've ascertained what it is he's looking for, then we just go off and uh, and do it ourselves. And when you do go for a new player, um, how do you sell Watford to him? Uh, I mean, the Premier League <laughs> Premier League plays a massive part in it. But I've noticed over the past couple of years, uh, we're getting some really high quality young players that are choosing us over maybe more established or uh, uh, top six clubs. So mm. Chalabar, for instance, because they see yeah. an opportunity to play. And they also understand what our model is. We want to develop young players, which in turn will make our football club more successful. But we accept that as part of their career development, they're going to move on to a top six club. And all we say is don't move linear. Don't move to another uh, mid-table team or a, a seventh place team don't go to an Everton don't go to a Southampton if you're going to leave go to Real Madrid go to Paris Saint-Germain go to Manchester United and it's that career aspiration that they understand we buy into and that means we are attracting some really top top players 
we've got Chalabar, a good UK example, yeah. and Delafeo yeah. from Barcelona because he was around the Barcelona first team, but he said, no, no, come to us, show what you can, develop, and then move back to Barcelona if necessary as a starter, on your terms as a starter. And so when players understand that we share their values and we share their career path, then we're attracting some really top, top talent. And I suppose this works the other way in that you're inevitably one or two of your more talent, well, better players or better identified players, there's always the risk, I suppose, that somebody else will come in and take that career path to an even higher level. I'm, I'm thinking yeah, I'm thinking of Decore and Pereira, players who've attracted a lot of attention this season. P- players leaving doesn't doesn't concern me. It's if when players don't leave, that's the, that's the <laughs> issue. Because, you know, I, I want players to leave because it means everything has been working correctly. They, they'll leave on our terms, which means we get the transfer fee that we want and they get the club that they want. And the only thing we've got to be concerned about is who is coming in. And with our scouting network and our knowledge, I'm very, very confident that when a player goes, technically, we will improve because we'll use the resources that are generated from that player sale to improve the squad. So players leaving is absolutely what we should be looking for and we should embrace it. It's certainly not what I fear. And uh, the sooner certain players move on, fantastic, because it means we'll be getting a great transfer fee and we'll technically improve the squad. So uh, I I would never fear a player leaving. Well, one player who might have left last summer but didn't, and in many ways he, I think he almost symbolises Watford, if I may use that phrase, was Troy Deeney. <laughs> <laughs> My best and worst signing, Troy Deeney. <laughs> Go on. No, he's, 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 he's phenomenal. Uh, when I say the best signing, uh, we obviously inherited Troy, but uh, uh, he, uh, he was holidaying at... Uh, her Majesty's uh, summer home when we uh, I know. when we first came to the club, and mm. there was a decision whether whether he would continue. Uh, uh, he did completely turned his life around and his career around, and has been fundamental to the uh, development of this football club. Every year, people write uh, Troy off, saying that yeah. the club will move to a, a different level, and every year he uh, he uh, he confounds the critics and and delivers. In, in many respects, he's a uh, he has a similar values to, uh, to to Graham Taylor that you know he's more earthy, more down to earth. <laughs> a little bit more earthy than <laughs> yes, go on. But the, but the supporters really really uh, relate to him because yeah. you know he he just speaks the truth and fundamentally, absolutely loves Watford Football Club and would do anything for this football club to uh, to, to succeed. And uh, yeah, sometimes he can infuriate, uh, but ultimately you know Troy Deeney is. Uh, the embodiment and DNA yeah. of the football club. I agree with that. And also, we haven't got time to name all the individuals who are doing well this season, but one thing I must say is if I was voting for Watford's Player of the Year now, I'd go for Ben Foster. Ben's been brilliant. <laughs> Ben's been brilliant. But it, it, that says something about our performances as well, though. But I think, I think attacking-wise, we've, we've been very good this year. There's, mm. been, there's been a number of a number of standout performances and performers. So, But I think, yeah, Ben, ben has been... A, has been a, a wonderful addition, but you know, Gomez was a, was a super keeper for us, and it mm. just shows how the club uh, and the team is improving that we're able to move from Gomez and actually bring in Ben Foster. So it's just part of the uh, development. But yeah, Ben's been a good keeper. Well, I think he's had a great season. Now, funnily enough, I've mentioned those two players partly because they're both English, and we're going to get onto a subject now, especially after the number of overseas players and successful signings you've had from abroad. Um, We are living in an era when there is this constant debate 
about how many English players or British players, if you like, a club should have and whether there should be a limit on the number of overseas signings. It's a big issue within the Premier League. Mm. Can I have your views on it, please? It, it, it's a big issue, but I, I think... You know, my view has always been that competition should never be restricted and competition makes players better. So I think certainly uh, when the foreign players came over and the foreign coaches came over, I think the English players got better. They were adopting new uh, new diet routines. And I just think if, if you're in training and the level has increased, whether it's an English player or a foreign player, that's a good thing. So I, I really don't see that creating an artificial barrier and an artificial restriction is in any way going to improve the ability and standard of, of, of English players. I just think that competition naturally makes players better and we shouldn't be looking to restrict that. I think you've got nine in your group yeah. um, and the FA are talking about 13. Hmm. I mean, is this FA attitude, is it governed any, in any way by Brexit? I don't know. I mean, I'm. <laughs> I, I bet since everything else seems to be at the moment. I, I don't know. I, I'm just naive. I'm an English supporter. And I've supported <laughs> England through numerous World Cups, and I just don't subscribe to the fact that there is actually anything wrong with the number of talent that England has produced. Historically, we've had some of the best midfielders in the world, if not the best. We had Gerrard, Lampard, Scholes, Beckham. Mm. I don't think we've ever had a problem producing top, top quality players. There are a number of issues why we haven't succeeded at tournaments, whether it's coaching, but I don't think it's anything to do with a quality of players available to the national team. And I think now you look at the number of fantastic players that are available to the national team. I don't understand why this dialogue of there is a problem within the Premier League, there's a problem with the homegrown players, that there's something to fix at the national level, because I just don't think there is. And if it's opportunism because of Brexit, well, I don't know. But all, all I know is England have always had a huge pool of wonderful mm. players, and they still do now. And the Premier League is a wonderful product, a wonderful league that's the envy of the world. We've got to think carefully before we start to alter that, because we could break it irretrievably, and then other leagues will uh, overtake us, and that won't be good for the national game, and it certainly mm. won't be good for domestic football. No, I mean, this club versus country argument has been reverberating in one way or another as long as I've been reporting, basically. Uh, do, do you think things have got a bit better? Do you think somehow now Gareth Southgate, the England team, have, been, have kind of developed a DNA which is more in keeping with the league in which, which we admire so much? Yeah, absolutely. It's... Everybody wants the England national team to do well because we're in England, the Premier League is English football clubs and we all want to see the national team do well. And I think with Gareth coming from a strong club management background and understanding the rigours and demands of the Premier League, there's definitely a far better understanding between the national team and the Premier League clubs. But as I say, and I think I think Gareth publicly admitted it, that he doesn't think quotas are the... Are the, are, are, the, are the answer because I don't think there is a question to answer I think the England national team is a good team has got good players available has a great coach and he's doing well and I think it's only a matter of time before we go to a tournament and we uh, and we win and I don't think we need to be looking for, for scapegoats for problems that don't exist Now bearing in mind your story at Watford started in the championship I just want to ask you something about the Premier League, and you've quite rightly extolled its amazing appeal across the world, the wages, the money, the, the desire to be in the Premier League, and then on the other hand, clubs that you once used to play, or Watford certainly did, the Championship, Leagues 1 and 2, is the gap too wide? Absolutely. 
It's uh, I don't have the answer, but the, the the utopia is that you should be able to be relegated, and it's a competitive disappointment, not a financial disaster. And that would be great for the game. That there is that natural competitive relegation promotion and that natural movement. Uh, the gap is way too wide. Uh, it's not good for the game. There is uh, the Premier League is creating a gap, not just between the Championship and the Premier League, but also the supporters and the clubs. This is what, again going back to what I think makes Watford so special. We're, we're our players are still very close to the supporters. We have summer open days where the players mingle freely with thousands of supporters and they're very very much accessible I think certain Premier League clubs that accessibility just isn't there and when you start to get that remote and that it creates problems and absolutely I think that on every level I don't have the answer but on every level the Premier League just needs to be careful that it, it it's not completely ostracized from the championship society supporters because that's not good. No, well, Richard Scudamore, when he was in position, always used to say, well, we give away 13% of our income to this, that and the other. Yeah. Um, <laughs> do, do you think the distribution of finance... Distribution of finance... Needs is, reconsidering no, or not? No, the distribution of finance is, 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 is considerable, and I think certain organisations sometimes forget just how how much the Premier League are putting back into not, not just good causes, but also grassroots football. What I'm talking about is an ideology, that we've got to make sure that the Premier League is always accessible as it's the working man sport, it's accessible to the supporters. And somehow, if you are relegated, it shouldn't be the end of a football club or a long road back to the uh, to the Premier League. Again, I don't have the answer to that, but uh, it's certainly, it's a, it's a, it's a sub-dialogue that lots of clubs are, are engaging in, is, is there a way that the Championship and the Premier League can become a little more aligned and bridge that gap? We obviously have the parachute payments, but... There has to be some solution at some point that, that will allow, because I think it'd be great. It'd be great competition that it's not the end of the road should you be, uh, should you be relegated. No, and I'm just thinking we're talking at a time when <laughs> Rugby Union is thinking of, uh, in its top division, a closed shop and no relegation. You wouldn't want that in football, would you? Now we're in the Premier League, absolutely. <laughs> but no, you, it's, it, what makes our, our, our league so exciting is that there is the relegation. I mean... If you're starting a new franchise like in MLS and you can start and that's it, you just have that as your blueprint, there is no relegation, then I think there's an acceptance and, and that will evolve. But it's in our 100 years of history that we have relegation. You, you, could, never, you could never take that away. So would you be in favour of a Premier League Division 2 or is that not quite part of the model? I don't have the answer. All I, know, all I know is that it would be great that relegation isn't, isn't financial oblivion for some clubs, that it's just a competitive disappointment. I don't have the answer. If I did, I probably would be doing another job. This is Motty Meats on Talk Sport with Watford chairman Scott Duxbury. Now, let's come back to your great passion, Watford Football Club. Now, I remember I was interviewing Alan Kirbishley for this series, Scott, a few weeks ago, and we talked about his days at Charlton Athletic when they did things which were, I wouldn't say necessarily compared to Watford, but they came up as an unfashionable club and they aspired to what in the end was seventh position at the end of a season in the Premier League. And I said to Alan, I always remember when they got to seventh, he, him and his uh, assistant manager Mervyn Day on the last day of the season said to me, Whew, we finished seventh, our problems start now because of expectation. Meaning that, of course, the fans would think, well, seventh this year, we could be in Europe in a year. And, of course, it didn't happen for Charlton. And I was going to say, look where they are now. But in fairness, they're doing their best under difficult circumstances to get back out of League One. Now, 
<laughs> where, where does that leave a club like Watford? Because you could, you could, as we sit here today, you could finish seventh mm. or eighth, maybe. I, you pick whichever one you want. Um, <laughs> and your fans might then say, well, hold on a minute. If we can get to seventh, we can get to fifth or fourth or third. Now, you might say, well, you can always dream, but would that be a dream? Or is there a limit to what a club of Watford's stature and size can achieve? No, I think I've always said from the beginning that there is no way I will put a limit on uh, the club's ambition or indeed my ambition. As far as the, the technical side is concerned, we've created a squad that needs games. I think you saw in the FA Cup we made 11 changes and that wasn't just frivolous, it's because those 11 players, most of them if not all were international or had played in the Premier League, top players that need games. And so I don't fear uh, success on the pitch because we have purposely built a squad that requires more than just Premier League and, and maybe a, a cup run. But as far as ambition's concerned, again, what really motivates me is what, is what goes on off the pitch. Uh, because we've only just begun. The development of Vicarage Road, I want to increase the capacity, I want to increase the training ground, I want to increase uh, how we interact with the supporters. I want to do. I want to create a football club that, when eventually I've moved on, the supporters are absolutely proud and think, "Wow, this is an amazing legacy that's been left by Gino Pozzo, and this football club now is here to stay." And what they can't take away, results come and go, victories come and go, but what we're building at, at, at Vicarage Road will be there forever. And we've only just begun, and, and it's that that makes me excited. Why? there is no limit on the ambition and why if we finish seventh or eighth that's just the start it's not oh my lord expectation I want expectation to rise because we've got so much to achieve and so much to do and this is not the end of the journey it, it really has only just begun you mentioned infrastructure there and your, your ambitions to improve the facilities and whatever else Watford's ground is actually in quite a built-up area isn't it yeah. I mean I mean would you think in long term about a new stadium, or is there more you can do at Vicarage Road? I can only speak personally. I mean, I will never turn down opportunities, I'll always consider it, but my personal view is I love the old-fashioned stadiums that are that are located in the heart of the stadium. I love the fact that uh, Anfield remained where it was. They decided to develop there. I think it's wonderful. Same with Old Trafford. And the same with Vicarage Road. I think it's a wonderful mm. stadium. You can walk from the town centre to yeah. the ground. Yeah. So I personally would sooner develop that stadium rather than move to you know a, a new, in my opinion, sometimes soulless uh, uh, stadium. So th mm. there's a lot of history, there's a lot of memories. I wouldn't want to move away. We all want to be part of the Lowry painting of going to the match, don't we, and see the chimney? Uh, <laughs> Not the chimneys exactly, but you, no, the shops. But... And, and yeah, I agree with you about the atmosphere. And, and funnily enough, I, the danger, I think, sometimes of the out-of-town... Uh, new builds is that they look a bit the same absolutely and everyone talks about being a community club but we are actually located in the community and mm. I think people are pleasantly surprised when they come to the Vicarage Road for the first time certainly certain media that haven't been there before <laughs> and they go wow it, it's a really nice stadium and I would sooner develop it than, than, than move away. And you think there's scope for that, do you? I mean, in terms of capacity? Absolutely. We're already embarked on a pathway to extend it. We're currently doing the, the, the northwest corner. We're going to develop the south corner. We've got plans to increase the Elton John stand and then eventually uh, increase the, uh, the Graham Taylor stand. So we have a pathway. Over the next coming years, we will be increasing the capacity and, uh, and developing it, hopefully getting us to 30,000. 
Well, you got me right on cue there because you brought in the name Elton John, and uh, we can't do a, a, a have a conversation about Watford without mentioning him, can Absolutely. we? I mean, obviously Elton chose Graham Taylor, and we all know what that achieved that partnership. How involved is Elton when he's here? Obviously, because I know he's been still been touring till very recently. How involved is he in the club now? Uh, he, he's involved in the sense that emotionally he's involved on a daily basis. He comes to games as often and as regularly as he can. He's in constant communication, constant communication, both with opinions of how the team has played, opinions on players, who we should be signing, have we seen this player. His knowledge of football is incredible. Uh, you know, he, he often will text or email me, are you watching this second division game? Yeah. And going, no, no, I'm not, Elton. <laughs> he watches everything and uh, he has a real knowledge of players and an absolute passion for the football club. And it's it's not... It's not superficial. It's absolutely no. his, 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 you know, his obvious love is music. His second love is Watford Football Club. And I probably will hear from him on a, on a daily basis on one matter or another. And he, he, Really? He, absolutely. And he's not backwards at criticising <laughs> as well. If I'm doing something wrong, he will let me know. But he, he has a genuine passion, a genuine warmth, and uh, it's great to have him involved. Funnily enough, I'm glad you mentioned his knowledge of the game because I was flabbergasted. I was privileged to be on a table that you invited me to where he was there earlier in the season. And I was amazed that he, he wasn't just a, fo- a Watford follower. I mean, he was talking yeah. about clubs and players all over the country. Yeah, uh, he, he recommends players that I've not heard of. And I say, I'll pass it to my scouting department. And they come back, yeah, yeah, really good player. Let, let's look at this. He absolutely has an encyclopedic knowledge of the, of the lower division players. It, it, it's incredible. Now, you mentioned something else there that perhaps I would have left out, but I shouldn't do because you've talked about recruitment. You mentioned the scouting department. Yeah. Now, how considerable is this and who actually decides where they go what's the, what's the method by which they research players the best way to describe it is we have a, a scouting board that'll be made up of eight possibly nine now key employed individuals uh, who uh, are around the world they then employ casual scouts and then the board meets usually every quarter to discuss the players that they've been observing the players that they've been watching because Anybody can create a list of players that this player's good, this player's good. The key is to really drill it down to two or three players that everyone agrees can play in the Premier League. This board meets, this board has that discussion, drills the players down. They then come to me, Gino and Filippo. And if we, uh, if we have a need for that player, technically to come straight in the first team, we'll make a move. Or if we believe it's a player we should be signing because he, he will grow then we'll sign and we'll, uh, we'll loan him out and, and let him develop until we're ready to, to bring him to Watford. Yeah. Now, we've talked a lot about stability and about the importance of the club in its widest sense, but we all know football is fickle. I mean, Burnley finished seventh last year and somebody has probably got them as a... or did have as a relegation candidate this yeah. year. I mean, does that ever go through your mind? Well, of course however much you develop the club and however hard you work and whatever players you sign whoever the coach is every club is capable of tumbling across a bad season completely and it goes back to your earlier point about the number of coaches we've got the one thing that we hope will be uh, our point of difference or indeed our strength is that we're not scared of making a decision so if we feel something is wrong we'll act if we feel that a player isn't right we will act and we'll always evaluate every single transfer window. We evaluate the strengths and weaknesses of the, of the team and we look to make sure that certain weaknesses are addressed. And we hope that that decision making, that speed of thought and that ability to make those quick decisions uh, will limit the number of negatives 
that can then make you have a bad season. It's always possible and you know, you've got to make sure that when you have the bad times, you've got a good group together that can get through it. But if we try and make sure that we objectively assess the squad, objectively assess the coach and make the right decisions, then hopefully we'll limit those negatives. Now, sitting here as you are, well, you're sitting in the studio today, thank you for that, but, but, but sitting in your boardroom, I should say, do you ever think back, because we started off talking about how you started with Maurice Watkins and, you know, the early days, Manchester United, West Ham, do you, like me, sometimes look back and think, my goodness, the game now looks totally different to what it was when we started? <laughs> <laughs> I think the, the biggest change, which, which is a great thing, is that the, the, the so-called smaller teams, the mid-table teams, are now financially able to compete with the top six and that means on the pitch they're able to produce teams that can that can beat the top six and that, that that's a great thing I think you know in, in, in other words the Premier League's got far more competitive and the gap is far closer now and that anybody can beat anybody and that perhaps wasn't quite the case when 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 I first started out in the Premier League now it's it's it, it's an equal playing field and it's it's better for it just one thing as well about Gino Pozzo before I forget, because <laughs> I've been talking to you as chairman. He, he is the owner. Yeah. Um, some owners, well, he's certainly not one of them, we never see because, you know, I'm not going to name names, but there's some owners who never go to a game, or not very often. Gino's always there, but he tends to me to... Does he shun publicity? No, he's, he's, he's made a calculated decision uh, out of respect or whatever you want to call it that, that I run the football club. Yeah. Uh, and so I will make the decisions, I will, I will face those decisions and I will have interviews like this. It means there isn't a vacuum, there isn't a dissenting voice, there isn't a differing opinion. Me and Gina will discuss things behind the scenes and make sure we're on the same page. But as far as running the football club is concerned, that's left to me. And uh, it's a conscious decision. I'm not saying it's the right or wrong decision, but it's, it's his decision. If you could look ahead now, this is a crystal ball question, uh, Scott. You've been quite logical with everything you've said, but if you could look down the line another five, ten years, where do you think Watford could be? Anywhere, and that's the beauty of it. We can be the best that we can be, and that's, that, that's what I want us to, to achieve. Just make sure we are the very best that we possibly could be. And I know there's a lot more work to do. Again, I'm not just saying this. I get up in the morning and I'm proud to be the, the chairman of Watford Football Club. Sometimes I've got great faith in my own ability, but sometimes you need a fit. You need to be at a club where they get you, you get them, and you feel you are creating something together. And you know, from day one, I felt that I understood, with Graham's help, what the supporters of Watford wanted mm -hmm. and how we can achieve it. And I've not lost that pride. I've not lost that passion. And I really do think that over the next five, six years, that we could achieve anything and that's the exciting thing if there was a, a set target that would be boring it's just it's unlimited what we can achieve and as long as I've got that passion and the supporters are still with us then who knows where we can get to and that's the exciting thing well yes and what's come over in, in this conversation is of course you you've got a, a very good team at the moment on the pitch and a very good coaching setup and and but you've got a very good team behind you i mean absolutely Glenn evans and the operations department and all that type of thing it seems to work at watford somehow it's a brilliant mix uh we've kept a significant number of people that were there uh, way before we yeah. took over the club people that are there with graham taylor yes plus there's a new addition which you need of commercial people who have been brought in 
who really understand the club and drive the football club forward. So when you've got that mix, I touched upon it earlier, that with Graham's passing, I, I lost my barometer of what's right and what, what is the Watford values. But there's still a number of key people at the football club who were there with Graham, who get Watford, that will just take me to one side now and again and say, that's not going to work, Scott. I listen to them because they mm. understand what makes this football club tick. Well, it's ticking, and so are you. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Delighted. Enjoy and uh, be careful when you drive past that statue. Thank you. <laughs> the undisputed world heavyweight champion of football commentators in another knockout interview. Motty Meats on Talk Sport.